every every film idea is like like a little baby turtle hatching on the beach. You know, there might be a, a million that actually hatch, and of those, only like maybe a hundred thousand make it to the waterline, and then of those, maybe only like fifty survive to adulthood. It's sort of the way films work too. It's like, oh yeah, there's a you know, million things out there that get optioned and then there's maybe a hundred thousand that get approved and then fifty thousand that get announced and then maybe a hundred that get made. Action. Welcome to Cinema Splash Page. I'm Michael Brody, and back in the early 2000s, I managed a couple of comic book shops and ran a couple of video stores, too. Those were the days. Lately, I host a weekly radio program, publish the occasional short story, and spend my Sunday nights running a live show that I call The Best Damn Trivia in Montreal. You can find me on stage asking some very silly questions every Sunday at 8 p.m. at a place called Grumpy's Bar in downtown Montreal, Quebec. My guest today is Mark Russell. Mark is an exceptional writer, one who's worked on some of the biggest properties in comics history. This list includes Superman, The Fantastic Four, Red Sonja, and The Wonder Twins, believe it or not. Yes, his Wonder Twins comics are pretty terrific. Anyway, while I've greatly enjoyed all of Mark's versions of other people's characters, it's his creator-own titles that really show off what he can do. Billionaire Island, Not All Robots, and Traveling to Mars are all excellent comics, and they're some of the finest, most entertaining, and thought-provoking books I've read in the last 10 years. And while I'd be quickest to recommend his creator-owned work to new readers, it was actually Mark's groundbreaking reimagining of the Flintstones, of all things, that first made me sit up and take notice of his writing. Now, all of Mark's work features a deft mix of clever plotting and spot-on humor, combined with social satire. But his Flintstones book, a book I never even imagined myself reading, is an unparalleled achievement. It's so good, I'm kind of upset there isn't more of it. Suffice it to say, I'm a big fan, and Mark Russell is a talented writer. Mark, welcome to the show. Wow, thanks for having me. I am fascinated by your Flintstones work, as I made clear a moment ago. Can you tell me a little about how that got started and how you chose the angle that you chose? I remember that uh, DC did this whole line of Hanna-Barbera reimaginings. If you don't mind, tell me a little about your take on the characters and storyline. There is a strong recurring plot point about false gods, which is not something I remember them going too deep into in the John Goodman movie. No, in fact, that was one of the few notes I got back from Hanna-Barbera when I started writing it. It was like, please don't mention any deities in your series. And I'm like, oh, you have you have no idea what you're in store for. But I, yeah, my, my take was like, this is the original civilization. So they're going to make all the mistakes that we see in our own civilization, but from a place of innocence, because they don't know any better. They're the first civilization. So they actually have a right to make a mistake, to make the mistakes that we're still making that we have absolutely no excuse for. And one of those obviously is, is about the progression of religion and about how religion goes from like, an animalistic or atavistic sort of need to understand the scary world around you to sort of an institution that exists for its own profit and survival as opposed to yours. And so I, I wanted to show the evolution of religion from animalism to monotheism within the context of a Flintstones comic. And I know that sounds horribly pretentious and may in fact be horribly pretentious, but that was what the comic was to me. It was a chance for me to like make the, the giant casserole. that was all my opinions about the foundational errors of civilization. Well, horribly pretentious is really what we're looking for here on this show. Great. So I'm delighted that we've already opened that box. You've come to the right guy. <laughs> well, Mark, we could continue to go through your entire bibliography project by project, but that's not really what we do here at Cinema Splash Page. Over here, we do things a little bit differently. We're here to talk about the films and other media that may have influenced and inspired you. Oh, uh, for the audience, if you'd like to hear more about Mark's overall career journey, I highly recommend listening to his many interviews on John Suntress's fine comics podcast, which is called Word Balloon. 
I think you've been on there like 10 times hawking your wares. That seems a little excessive. I don't know about that. I'm a, a recurring guest. Well, it couldn't be a better show. I, I love I love John. I think I've earned the green blazer that you get when you go on Saturday Night Live five times. <laughs> I think I've got that. Well, that's that's an achievement in and of itself. Mark, there's no reason to, to, to wait anymore. Why don't you hit us with your first title? Okay, I think the first one I put on the list was Cinema Paradiso. And the reason why I put that on there, and I put it on there because it's sort of my favorite movie, and I think it's a good example of what I think a great movie should be. Or it's got a lot of things in it that I think this is what a movie needs to have to become not just a good movie, but a great movie. And one, it shows the passage of time. It's got character development. But I think the most important thing is that it really is about the emotional connections of the characters to a place and time, which I think, you know, sort of like the Flintstones, I guess, in a way. Well, if you don't mind, I'm going to read the one-line IMDb synopsis just to catch up anybody who's like, oh, okay. what was that again? That's probably good. Well, here's the IMDb description of the film. A filmmaker recalls his childhood when falling in love with the pictures at the cinema of his home village and forms a deep friendship with the cinema's projectionist. It's a movie by Giuseppe Tornatore. Do you have any other thoughts on the film itself, Mark? Yes. You know, one of the things that I, I really like and one of the things I try to emulate in my own writing is an ending that seems at once surprising and yet inevitable at the same time. And... This movie pulls it off maybe as good as any movie I've ever seen. And it's not like a big twist. It's not like it turns out that the mother is a skeleton or the murderer is the best friend or whatever. It's just a very human ending. And I don't know if I should spoil it for people, but... I think you're safe to get a little bit into the spoilers. Yeah, it's it's about a 35-year-old movie, so I think uh, it's probably okay. But, you know, this boy who grows up at the cinema sort of befriending the projectionist and watching the movies for free from the projection booth collects these scraps of film that the uh, local bishop makes the projectionist cut out of the film because they it's a small town in Italy so they have the local bishop comes in and watches the films before the public can see them and he basically makes the projectionist cut out all the kissing scenes or all the scenes with public displays of affection which of course upsets the audience because every time a scene's coming up where two people are you know a romantic scene where two people are about to kiss it just cuts to like you know a car chase or something and it's over and groans in the theater but the the kid collects all these strips of film he doesn't have any way to play them or anything he just collects them because he likes these little strips and then at the end when they have the big farewell party at the theater he cuts together he splices together all the scenes of all the kisses in public displays of affection that the bishop had cut out of the mo all the movies in the years before, and he just runs them as one giant reel. So the end of the movie is just all these kissing scenes that happened over time. And it's extremely moving, and I think it beautifully encapsulates his own love for the cinema and for this town and how, how much it has changed over time, and yet how the human feeling of like love and connection to these people has remained the same. And I can think of a single better way to like encapsulate that than what he came up with for the ending. Cinema Paradiso is a wonderful film. And I, I want to mention that uh, it's, as I said, it's by Giuseppe Tornatore. But my favorite Tornatore film is actually a movie called The Legend of 1900. I don't know if you've seen that. That's a great movie, too. I love that movie as well. Yeah. The interesting thing comparing the two movies is that the Legend of 1900 has two cuts. It has a two-hour cut and a three-hour cut. And the two-hour cut of The Legend of 1900 is much better than the three-hour cut. It's just an extra hour of unnecessary information. Whereas there is a three-hour cut of Cinema Paradiso and a two-hour cut, and I much prefer the longer cut of Cinema Paradiso. Yeah, I think it really stands for a longer, sort of more elliptical storytelling because it's really about this man's feeling for people and for the place where he grew up changing and evolving over time. For those who don't know, The Legend of 1900 is about a, a baby boy who's discovered in the year 1900 on an ocean liner who grows into a musical prodigy but never once sets foot off this ship. And that's amazing. The entire thing is his life 
never taking a step off that ship. And I couldn't have been more drawn into that story. It has one of the most beautiful scenes, I think, in cinematic history. And it's when they bring a recording studio on board the ship to record him playing the piano because he's never stepped off the ship, as you just mentioned. And so they're going to record him on the ship because word is spread about this piano wonderkind playing on board the ship. And he doesn't really have anything in mind of what he's going to play, but they just start recording and tell him to play something. And while they're recording, the one and only record he makes in his life, the, the woman that he falls in love with just happens to be wa walking. He sees her for the first time walking in front of a series of portals outside the, uh, the room they've crafted to be the recording studio. And he just basically plays his emotions upon seeing this woman that he's fallen in love with instantly, and that becomes the record. And it's just a really moving and beautiful scene. And it, it's really daring to put a scene like that in a movie because you have to have, you got to make sure that the song is worthy of it. But of course, they had Ennio Morricone doing the soundtrack, so that helps. Great memory. Yeah, it's called Playing Love, if anyone wants to uh, look up the songs to hear what I'm talking about. Or, you know, you could just look up the scene, that scene, Playing Love, on YouTube. But it's a, it's a breathtaking scene. Uh, well, as I said, uh, Cinema Paradiso and The Legend of 1900 are by Giuseppe Tornatore. And what's interesting to me about him is that uh, later on, he made a couple of thrillers that are very interesting. He made one called The Best Offer with Jeffrey Rush in 2013, and another one called The Unknown Woman in 2006. They're just very interesting films, and different, of course, than these sweeping romantic epics. When it comes to stories, by the way, that take place over decades and show how people's lives ultimately turn out, I can't help but think of uh, Fantastic Four Life Story, your book with Sean Isaacs. Well, thank you. That was a great segue, by the way. That's what we do here. You know, if it was up to me, I would like to see you do a good long run on Fantastic Four. I have nothing against the current creative team. I'm actually really enjoying the book right now. But would you be interested in telling more FF stories or... Did you say all you had to say with your miniseries? No, I would love to do more Fantastic Four. In fact, there's a lot of things I wasn't able to put in that series just because I had more ideas than the, uh, the pages would warrant. So, yeah, I would totally be up for writing more Fantastic Four. And they're my favorite Marvel characters. If I could choose any series to write, I would write a Fantastic Four series. So it's, it's amazing to me that that was my first full Marvel series and I got sort of what I considered a plum assignment. Uh, Mark, why don't you hit us up with another title? The second one on my list was Repo Man. From the IMDb, a young punk recruited by a car repossession agency finds himself in pursuit of a Chevrolet Malibu that is wanted for a $20,000 bounty and has something otherworldly stashed in its trunk. All right. I didn't see this movie in the theater. I watched it on VHS when I was in high school, and it sort of changed my life. In fact, you could trace that movie too um i had no idea it existed i watched this episode of siskel and ebert at the movies and they had a like an episode on cult movies like movies you might have missed that are strange and that episode that one episode of siskel and ebert sort of became this cultural touchstone where so many movies that i in directors that i came to just love i was first introduced to by this one half hour episode of siskel and ebert i think they talked about Eraserhead. So that was like sort of my introduction to David Lynch. And in one of the movies they talked about was Repo Man. So it looked fascinating just based upon that, that episode. So I went and rented it. And I just was, my jaw dropped when I watched it. Because it was just so funny. And it has probably more quotable lines than any movie I've ever seen before in my life. So many weird but sort of pithy one-liners. And I think in a lot of ways this is also sort of really influenced me in my writing in that like I want every line of dialogue to count and I want these lines that sound like like nobody else on the planet would say but that character and it also is just like a sort of a screwball science fiction movie where it's got sort of a serious science fiction story lurking in the background but all the characters are trying to do is make money off of repossessing cars so it's got this combination of this grand sort of cosmic theme paired with this very earthy, like, human level thing, which I, I just love. I feel like that's another thing I try to emulate in my work. This big and small, like somebody who's, like, not really cut out for great things, 
suddenly running afoul of the universe in some way. I think um, that Repo Man might be one of the secret most influential movies of all time because the number of people I have heard mention this film with regards to later going on to create things is it's so many people. I'm not a big Alex Cox fan, the director of the film, because most of his stuff is too surreal for me, but I really did like his Ed Harris film, Walker. I don't know if you've seen that. Yeah, Walker was great, too. I, I am a sort of a big Alex Cox fan. I, I wish he had gone on to do more feature films, but yeah, I liked Sid and Nancy a lot, and I also, one of, I think, his more underrated films is a film he did in his latter days as a director called Three Kings which retells the story of, of the three kings going to witness the birth of Christ. But it's just about these three businessmen who hook up in London late at night, and they're all their, their last names are all derivation of the word king in different languages. But it's just them sort of hanging out in London after hours, trying to get you know something to eat and talking about life, and then like sort of stumbling upon the birth of Christ. But you probably would hate it, because if you don't like his surreality, this is maybe one of the more surreal ones he does. But to me, that's what I loved about it, is it's sort of like a French New Wave film, where it sort of abandons any pretense about plot, and it's just following these guys and what they do over the course of an evening. And it felt very much like a Louis Bunuel or a Jean-Luc Godard movie to me. Well, you think I might hate it, but the reality is I love any film starring George Clooney and Ice Cube, so it's going to work out fine. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, when it comes to an unruly gang of misfits brought together to do a job, and Repo Man has a bit of that, I can't help but think of your One Star Squadron comic. I love Steve Lieber's work, and I love misfit DC characters, so Minuteman in particular hits a soft spot for me, which is probably because I'm a huge Hour Man fan, and even I'll admit that there's very little that's ever been done with Hour Man that's great. So the one-minute version is just a hilarious concept. Do you, do you have any thoughts on the One Star Squadron book? Besides the fact that it was a chance to work with Steve Lieber, which was an immediate draw for me, I wanted to do a story about superheroes that are past their prime. Kind of about what do you do with people who are no longer useful. And in a lot of ways, I think it could be seen as, as a parable that you could make about old athletes suffering from chronic brain trauma from a lifetime of playing football, or you can make it about military veterans who, now that you're back and you fought the war, thank you for your service, here's absolutely nothing for you. And I feel like in a lot of ways, it's about how we view people, even people we claim to admire as disposable, and about how we don't really create opportunities for people or options for people that are on the downward slope of their lives. And most of us most of our lives are spent on that downward slope. And the heroes have to sort of come together and provide that for each other. But that's not enough. It's really, I think, about how the greatest villain that we will face in our lives is our own obsolescence. And about how the only sort of solution there is to that is valuing each other as, as human beings, whether or not people are useful to us. I think that's really kind of the only way you can define whether or not you are a good human being is how you treat the people who mean nothing to you. Mark, why don't you hit us up with another title? Okay, the next one on my list is Groundhog Day, which is probably, of all the ones on this list, the most universal. The one everyone probably would say, oh, yes, that's a great movie. and Universally adores that movie as a classic. It's hardly necessary to do this, but I'm still going to read the shortest possible IMDb description of the film, which is simply to say, a self-centered weatherman finds himself in a time loop on Groundhog Day. So go ahead. Tell us your thoughts on Groundhog Day. Well, I think the thing that I love about Groundhog Day and the reason why it's resonated with me over the years is that it really kind of tells the story of the death of toxic masculinity and male-centric privilege. And I think that this is, in a lot of ways, a parable for the path that a lot of us have taken when we were, were taught 
early on that were, especially if you grew up like sort of an entitled white guy as I did, that, oh, you, you're great, you know, you're the master of every situation, and you are sort of inflated with ego, thinking that you, the world revolves around you, but through the repetition and brutality of life, you begin to sort of realize, at least if you are thinking about it, that that's not really true. You're not the best at everything. You're not, you're not really supposed to be in charge of every situation. And I think that that realization does one of two things to people. It forces you to sort of revise your view of your place in the universe, or it just forces you to get really bitter inside and start blaming other people for the fact that you're not getting the accolades that you felt that were your due just by virtue of your privilege. And I feel like this is the journey that Bill Murray goes through. At first, he's sort of bitter and he like blaming the groundhog. He thinks it's the other, the various people. He punches out Ned Ryerson. And then it's at some point it begins to dawn on him that there is maybe no explanation for his place in the universe and that the, the key is really just to sort of accept it or to, to find what is of value in the world as it is presenting itself to him and not think that he is the master of the universe that he came into Puxatani thinking he was. Uh, my take on uh, Groundhog Day wasn't anywhere near as in-depth and thoughtful. When I first saw that movie, and I saw it in the cinema when it first came out, was I was about halfway through it enjoying the movie, trying to figure out what was going. And then they had that segment where he learns the piano. And it's, with an endlessly repeating day, he can keep going back to the same small town teacher and learn more and more and more lessons until he's as good as she could possibly teach someone over decades. And I remember thinking, wow, if I had all the time in the world, I would want to take up all of these skills as well. And then it hit me like, well, I live in reality. Why don't I just do that anyway? And it was a strange little awakening for me of, yeah, I should be making a bigger effort in my life. It's very funny to realize that coming from a silly little comedy. But as you said, there's more to this film than just being humorous. Yeah, it's a very existential film. And I think that someone actually did a thing where they tried to figure out how long it would take for him to actually develop all the skills that he has by the end of the film. And someone came up with the answer like 30 years. He would have to repeat the same day over and over again for 30 years to obtain all of these skills. But of course, that's assuming that he only worked on obtaining those skills. I'm sure there's like, you know, many more days when he's not doing any of that. So the original script I know had him living this way for 10,000 years, just repeating the same day over and over again. I think most of us would probably go crazy by then. So the truth is probably somewhere in between. Seeing as it's a movie directed by Harold Ramis, the interesting thing, he didn't direct this, but I I do know in the original script for Ghostbusters, the 1984 film, it was the movie we have now, but with a multiverse plotline threaded through it in which you were going to see Ghostbusters on other Earths huh. going through similar problems. It sounds like a giant mess, frankly. And apparently Ivan Reitman helped Dan Aykroyd turn it into the film that it is because Aykroyd's idea was way, way out there. Yeah, when in doubt, Limit your scope to the things that matter. Uh, when it comes to Groundhog Day, as we were just talking about, there are now so many time loop movies in every conceivable genre. It's kind of amazing. I really enjoyed some recent ones. I loved Palm Springs. I loved Source Code from about 10 years ago. And I really like Joe Carnahan's Boss Level, the film with Frank Grillo. And they are all just another Groundhog Day movie. And one more just to mention for fun, it's a little to the left of this, but it's a film called Time Crimes by Nacho Villalongo. Yeah, I've seen it. It's so good, but so mean. Yeah, Time Crimes. I've never seen Boss Level, but all three of those other movies are all great. And of course, I think that it's really a, a good formula that's our time loop because it allows you to see characters... It allows you to sort of explore the futility that any single moment presents to us about how all our chances are happenstance and or all of our, our choices are based on completely imperfect information. And I think that's like the core of the existential crisis before us is that anything we do is more likely to be wrong or at least imperfect because we only do it once. <laughs> and so to sort of embrace that futility 
Well, uh, if you don't know this, prior to Groundhog Day coming out, there was another time loop movie that's very close. I think they came out the same year. It's a movie called 1201, starring Jonathan Silverman and Martin Landau, and it leans a little further into being a sci-fi film, but the comedy of repeating a day is, is not lost on that film. Oh, I haven't seen that one. That, that sounds great, though. Yeah, seek it out. I mean, if only to see a great Martin Landau performance, because there's only so many. That's reason enough. Well, speaking of um, animals in peril, and there's a scene or two like that in Groundhog Day, I loved your Ace the Bat Hound story that you did with Carl Mostert in Batman Urban Legends. Oh, thank you. I personally, I'm very sensitive to animals and peril stories. See, I agree with Pedro Pascal about Paddington 2. I cried through the whole thing, and it made me want to be a better man. <laughs> yeah, I feel like that's one of the best things I've ever written, and it sort of just got consumed into the, uh, the whole Batman Urban Legends universe because there's so many different stories going on at the same time but i'm still very proud of that yeah I, I really want to see it collected properly i would like that too your artist carl mostert in places and i mean this as a compliment he does a really good job of coming close to frank quietly with his line art the reason why we chose him for the project because i looked at his drawings of other animals and i thought he had just the right amount of anthropomorphization where it wasn't heavy, it wasn't like he was doing like a Hanna-Barbera cartoon version of the animals, but it, but he had enough of an awareness in them where they just looked like they were stoically absorbing what was happening to them in a way that I found really sort of moving. And that was primarily why we chose him, because he had this right balance of like, these are animals, but there's an awareness in their eyes and in their movements that they understand the horrors of this world that they've been dropped into. Mark, why don't you hit us up with another title? Uh, the next one I have on my list is Raising Arizona. Never heard of it. <laughs> um, from the IMDb, uh, a really simplistic synopsis for one of the world's most famous films, a childless couple... An ex-con and an ex-cop decide to help themselves to one of another family's quintuplets. Yeah, like Repo Man, I saw this one in high school and it just blew my mind. It completely was like opening a door in the house and finding like there's a room I never knew was in there before. I think because it sort of was my first engagement with the Coen Brothers sensibility, the idea that you have this sort of redneck gothic to me, it was like really influential and inspirational. I've probably seen that movie like a hundred times and it never gets old to me. It works on every level. There's slapstick comedy. There's this great sort of metaphysical ode to childhood and growing up. And, you know, the Leonard Smalls characters, this, this sort of archetypical, almost supernatural Gilgameshian foe. And yet and it also just sort of works as like a uh, sort of heist gone wrong movie. Just so many different levels. And it was really sort of the door opening and showing me that there was more to movies than just having a good time. Yeah, that movie was made during a perfect period where Barry Sonnenfeld was their DP. Nicolas Cage was still an unknown quantity that was ready to explode at any moment and his performance in that is extraordinary even he has said on numerous occasions it's my favorite work i've done yeah he was fantastic and holly hunter was too holly hunter was just amazing in that film yeah another performance given right at the beginning of her career when no one knew who she was and she astonishes in that one yeah i think that's the movie that also sort of made john goodman's career I think it was like his only a second feature film. Well, you can't discount Chud. Oh, was he in Chud? He's in Chud for one minute in the last shot of the movie as a cop in a, I want to say, a donut shop. Oh, wow. Now, I think his first movie was True Stories in 1986. He's got a great part in that. And then he did Raising Arizona in 1987. And that's sort of what got him on the map. I saw Raising Arizona... Almost the same time, I saw another film called Crime Wave. And Crime Wave, for the Cohen completists, 
is this movie they wrote for Sam Raimi to direct, and it is a hugely flawed movie in that it was taken away from the director and recut, but it has so much bizarre DNA connected to Raising Arizona and other projects that both creators were working on at the same time. Have you ever seen Crime Wave? No, but it sounds like a terrible idea to take a Coen Brothers movie out of the Coen Brothers' hands unless someone else recut it. Was actually directed by the uh, by Sam Raimi from their script. Oh, I see. Oh, so it still sounds like a bad idea. It's like a, like a visionary director, and then to like hand it off to somebody else who doesn't understand their their colloquial sensibilities and ask them to recut it. Yeah, I mean, you would spend the entire running time recognizing all of the touches that belong to Sam Raimi and the Coens, and seeing that they don't quite work. But it's I can't not watch those movies. I have to know. And uh, I think there's enough good stuff that made it through Crime Wave that makes it worth it. If nothing else, if you are a Bruce Campbell fan, he has a small part in that movie, and he's extraordinary. Huh. They let him be his sleaziest for about 10 minutes in that movie. You know what movie I think Raising Arizona gets a lot of its, and probably the Coen brothers in general, get a lot of their DNA from is Badlands, the Terrence Malick movie from 1973, starring Martin Sheen and Sissy Spacek. Oh, I love that film. I didn't really realize it until I watched it again recently, but the whole use of narration and the tonality of this country person sort of telling the story, I think from their perspective, sort of the merger of a romance and a uh, crime story, it owes a lot of that to Badlands. Well, there is very little that is thematically tying Raising Arizona to a comic of yours I'd like to bring up, which is Billionaire Island. Other than they are both zany in places. Billionaire Island is a fascinating satire of the ultra-rich and a dog named Business Dog. You teamed up with artist Steve Pugh on the Flintstones and then on this. Again, like some of your other collaborators, I have liked Steve's work since way back when. He did this run on Grimjack, I think in the late 80s. In a perfect world, I am guessing you would call dibs on Mr. Pugh going forward, make him the Sean Phillips to your Ed Brubaker, the Kevin Klein to your Lawrence Kasdan. Yeah, I'm always down to work with Steve. In fact, we're talking about doing an image title together about a man trapped in a donkey's body. So hopefully there will be some, some news about that in the near future. Well, I'm glad someone is finally reaching out and grabbing onto that untapped man in a donkey genre. Yeah, it's, I know it's a bit played out, but we're going for it anyway. <laughs> That's great. I really want that book to exist now. Uh, Mark, why don't you tell us your next title? Force Majeure, the Ruben Ostland movie. Well, as the IMDb describes it, and it's really hard to describe this movie properly, a family vacationing in the French Alps is confronted with a devastating avalanche. That's it. That's all their description says. Nothing delving into the actual film. Yeah, that's really the uh, beginning. It really sort of is the, uh, the, the most rudimentary description possible. For those who haven't seen it, the basic premise is that the Swedish family goes skiing in the Alps and there's an avalanche or what looks like it's going to be an avalanche and the dad, the father of the family, jumps up from the table and runs off the balcony, saving himself and leaving his family there to suffer the fate of the avalanche. But then the avalanche just turns into like, it peters out by the time it hits the lodge and just becomes sort of like this snow dust storm. So everyone's fine. But then he tries to come back to the table like nothing happened. And his wife is thinking, well, wait a minute, did you just leave us all to die? And the rest of the movie is about, you know, her sort of like wondering if she could trust this guy anymore and him trying to variously pretend like nothing happened and then sort of apologizing and then, you know, trying to win his family back. It's one of the darkest comedies I've ever seen and it's just brilliant. And it really is just about like how, and I think a lot, most of Ruben Austin's movies are about how little you know somebody until they're confronted with primal forces. Very well said. I, I do believe it's Ruben Oslin's masterpiece. I did not feel the same way about Triangle of Sadness. Oh, I love Triangle of Sadness. For me, it was a bit of a slog to get through, and it kind of, it felt like the whole movie boiled down to, people with power are awful. <laughs> it's like, I, I get it. 
Well, I think it's more, it's not really about the people with power being awful. It's more about the power bringing out the awful part that's already inside people. Because the power dynamic shifts over the course of the film and various people who have no power suddenly have power and people who had power suddenly have none. It really is about like how power sort of, when confronted with the ability to have power or not have power, that that, that really tells the story of your personality. Way better said than I could have. And you do touch on points I 100% agree with. I just felt minute by minute I wanted everyone in that movie to die. Yeah, that's, that seems, you know, that's a fairly common experience, I think, the Ruben Oslin movie. Because I think he's ultimately sort of looking at us through a somewhat cynical lens. But I, I love his movies. I think they're always hilarious and thoughtful. I don't know if you saw The Square, but I felt the same way about it. I see everything. I believe that. This seems like the right podcast for you. <laughs> I, I can't uh, let a conversation about Force Majeure go without touching on the remake. Because that remake with Will Ferrell and, and Julia Louise-Dreyfus is so far off the mark of the original film that it is a... I can only imagine. It is a fascinating watch if you can divorce it a little bit from the original because other than the scene where the snow comes in and he's about to he starts to make a mad dash away from his family everything else is a little bit different yeah i i hate for the most part these remakes of particularly these swedish or scandinavian films because they always try to make them too nice or they try to like pull the punch a little bit back from them which completely misses the point of why this, these movies were worth watching to begin with. Artistically, it just seems like the blandest exercise imaginable to take a good movie and it's like taking your a taco but making it with, without any seasoning. Uh, you mentioning uh, a taco without any seasoning, is it's going to tie into the next thing I was about to bring up. It's actually a quote from something I was about to bring up. You... Um... I love this quote from you. It's from a scene in a comic you wrote where a character says, I think that's a great idea. But then again, I thought celery ice cream was a great idea. <laughs> Which is, I don't know if you even remember where that's from. I'm gonna, I, I don't even remember where that's from. So uh, I'll, I'll go back and say that uh, because force majeure is so tied up with family dynamics... I'm going to loosely connect it to your six-issue Swamp Thing run, which was called oh, New yeah. Roots. It's from that. And there have been so many Swamp Thing comics over the last 50 years. I, I would say a few too many. But uh, the run that Alan Moore did, and then when he passed that on, the baton that he passed to Rick Veach, the family stuff in there, the relationship stuff, it is so good and so challenging. I don't know if you even have an opinion on the Moore run. Yeah, I love it. It really is kind of what made Swamp Thing one of my very favorite DC characters. Because I, I feel like he has the brain of a scientist, but the soul of a poet. And one of the things that really drew me to, uh, to Swamp Thing is his use of narration of Alec Holt. The character like uses narration he's, he's aware inside. And also trying to like decide whether or not he's a plant who thinks he's a man or a man who thinks he's a plant. And to me, it really is sort of the... Uh, the definitive run of Swamp Thing. Although I realized when I was writing Swamp Thing that the worst thing I could possibly do would be to try to like mimic Alan Moore or to do sort of a second-rate version of Alan Moore. So I tried to make it more about what I would do with the perspective I think a guy would have if he was trapped in the body of a vegetable and what sorts of things he would care about. Well, what I love was that you brought in the Swamp Thing Universe version of Monsanto, and you are uh, very critical of their self-terminating seeds and that kind of greed and dangerous business tactics, so thank you for that. Yeah, it seems like a natural arch-villain for a plant-based superhero. It seems like the biggest thing that would be on his radar, or the biggest sort of danger he would see in the world, the monoculture of like these Terminator seeds and what they would do for vegetation and life on the planet if everything could be so commodified. Well, 
I, I really like the whole six issues that you did because they're they're really dark and really serious. One of them has like a twisted tales type ending, but they have these comedy highlights throughout. Like in the very first issue, you have a line which was uh, character says suggestions for how we deal with this swamp thing, and someone just says a giant lawnmower, <laughs> <laughs> which is so. Perfect, but it is so comedic and so just thrown out there. It's thrown away. It's a, you know, in a movie, it would just be said off the cuff. Yeah. And again, I loved your line about, uh, I thought celery ice cream was a good idea. So what do I know? Yeah. No, I think that you know, a lot of it is sort of a satire of like corporate culture, like how they would deal with the fact that the biggest threat to their agro pack, their sort of corporate agrarian mass farming business would be this plant-based monster the sorts of ideas they would come up with to deal with it. So Mark, why don't you tell us your next title? My next one is perhaps my favorite science fiction movie of all time. Maybe also my favorite animated movie of all time. Fantastic Planet. Which is uh, also known as La Planète Sauvage, because it is a French film. Yes. And the IMDb has an interesting way of describing this movie. On a faraway planet where blue giants rule, oppressed humanoids rebel against their machine-like leaders. Why don't you give us some thoughts on what your, what your takeaway from Fantastic Planet was? That's not a bad description, actually. But yeah, I think it's really about how the id versus the superego and about how we uh, teach ourselves to be civilized and the, the ohms which are the uh, the big giant blue creatures who own this planet are very emotionless and rational and they control everything but they have humans as pets basically like these pet mice and they uh which they dress up with funny little stupid costumes and they uh play with them and they put these collars around their necks so if they get too far afield they can always drag them back and about how dry and meaningless the life is for these human pets and the story follows one of these these human pets who through happenstance is able to sort of intercept the little girl who owns him intercept her like school lessons on his neck collar so he's learning everything she is about the fantastic planet he learns how to read he learns about how the planet is made up and he uses this knowledge to escape her control and he meets these sort of wild human mice people these these wild humans that live out in the park and he's able to sort of like teach them how to rebel knowledgeably against the ohms and i think that this in a lot of ways is a metaphor for what happens inside us is that we feel like our we are always having to suppress our primal nature who we really are in order to be good at customer service, in order to get by at work or at church or at school or wherever. And obviously we can't be just completely id-driven where we're just completely authentic in saying things as we, we feel in a primal way. But we could take the education and the knowledge of how things work and how other people operate that we get from this civilized superego self and use it to sort of create this informed rebellion where we can be authentic within the framework of our own sort of private lives or within context of navigating society. And that's kind of how I see it. But it's just so beautiful and so imaginative. And it's one of the most creative science fiction movies I think I've ever seen, just the designs. Roland Topor is the uh, animator who designed a lot of the planet and the uh, the animal life and the plants. And I've seen this movie dozens of times, and I always just find it breathtaking, like what he came up with. So far afield from what anybody else, I think, would have done with that movie. Well, for those who have never seen it, I, I like to mention that um, Fantastic Planet animation style is it's a little bit like Yellow Submarine. It's, it's better rendered, but it's way more surreal. <laughs> and that's saying something. Yeah, Roland Topor makes a point where you can either have really beautiful art and have the movement be stiff, almost like a cutout moving, or you can have the movement be really smooth and natural, 
but then you're probably going to have to sacrifice the beauty and the intricacy of the art. And most American animation chooses the movement over the art. And he chooses the art over the movement. So yeah, the, the movement oftentimes looks stiff and almost like you're moving a paper cutout, but the designs themselves are just amazing. They're just beautiful. And it's okay that they don't move the same as they would in American animation because you're just sitting there in awe of what he's drawn. Uh, well, let's talk a little bit about your Humans Getting Subjugated story or Relegated to Obsolescence, a book you did called Not All Robots with Mike Diodato Jr. It is a great book and it is gorgeously rendered. Yeah, Mike's a great artist. And I think in a lot of ways, the soul of this book was Mike playing it very deadpan. He doesn't lean into the jokes, even though it's, it was written as like sort of black comedy. He uh, allows, as far as the characters know, this situation is as serious as death. And so I think the lines, most of which are just sort of deadpan, really hit harder because he made those choices artistically. But yeah, it basically, Not All Robots is sort of like Fantastic Planet in that I think it's a grand metaphor for a certain aspect of the human condition. In the case of Not All Robots, it's sort of a grand metaphor for toxic masculinity about how we see ourselves as robots or as the economic function that supports a family. We begin to resent that family. We begin to resent the people who rely upon us because we feel that they see us as purely being an economic function, which is because that's how we've been trained to see ourselves. And I think that it really is about learning to deprogram ourselves, so to speak, from, uh, from seeing ourselves as purely economic functions is the only way to sort of reclaim our humanity and to recognize that in other people as well, to stop seeing each other as, as robots or as things that have one job that has utility for us and that are utterly meaningless outside that role. Mark, why don't you tell us your next title? The next one on my list is Total Recall, the 1990 version. Well, as the IMDb is fond of uh, summarizing things simply, Douglas Quaid is haunted by a recurring dream about a journey to Mars. I think that's enough. People know this movie. <laughs> yep. Yeah, I'd, I'd be surprised if any of your listeners hadn't seen this or needed me explain what Total Recall is about. But for this one... The reason why I put this on the list was less because of the movie, which I think is a brilliant movie, but just more because of the experience I had in the movie theater watching it, where this was like, I think, the very peak of Arnold Schwarzenegger's career. And I remember being kind of blown away, like going to see this in movie theater and how much like a, like a rock concert it felt. I went there, people were standing and cheering during the movie, they're shouting and the movie really is a very thoughtful science fiction sort of Philip K. Dick story, but people were acting like Kiss was on stage. It was just bizarre. The whole time I remember thinking, like, is Arnold Schwarzenegger really this popular? I mean, I loved his movies. I loved, like, Running Man and Commando and the movies he'd done before this, but I always thought of him as sort of like, almost like a B-movie actor. And to see him suddenly become the biggest star in Hollywood really kind of blew my mind a little bit. The thing that, that I take away from Total Recall, I mean, I'm, I'm completely dismissing the fascinating bits about this movie and just jumping straight to, it is so violent. Verhoeven's previous film, Robocop, was absurdly violent, but this, it outdoes it. Even the casual violence moments in Total Recall are, these are the same kind of scenes that would be largely bloodless in another action film, are incredibly messy and gooey and awful. Just the scene where Schwarzenegger grabs a completely innocent person and uses them as a human shield during a gunfight is, in a less fun movie, it would be unbelievably upsetting. But it's just in the middle of this fun action sequence. I, I just couldn't help but notice, wow, this is obscenely violent. Yeah, probably the most sort of off-the-chart scene for me was the scene where they were exposed to the surface of Mars their eyes start bulging out, their tongues hanging out. 
and their faces start sort of like disintegrating. <laughs> Funnily enough, when writing Traveling to Mars, I actually did some research on what would happen if you were exposed on Mars like that. And that's not really what would happen, believe it or not. Your eyes don't bulge to like three times their size. You don't sort of do this weird suffocating thing. And But what does happen is almost as horrible and maybe even more so. It's called the Armstrong effect, where, you know, water boils at lower temperatures depending upon the altitude. So if you were to take off your pressurized helmet on Mars or be exposed, what would happen is the altitude is such on Mars that the water boils at a temperature below human body temperature. So you would basically just boil alive. Your blood and the liquids inside you would just boil you to death. Wow. I imagine you already know this, but uh, this film was the original movie, uh, Total Recall, was almost directed by David Cronenberg, and he did a, a pretty serious pass on the script. Are you aware of that? No, huh? I never heard that. There's one scene in the movie that is very clearly the Cronenbergs, or at least I've been told it's the scene that he generated. It's the sequence in which a gentleman enters the room to let the Schwarzenegger character know you're still in the game and you have to stop what you're doing. All of this is virtual reality. Sure, you can kill me if you want, but it's only going to send you deeper into the fantasy. And then Schwarzenegger was staring at him and he sees a bead of sweat on that man's scalp and realizes, yeah, that wouldn't be in a simulation and shoots him. Or would it? And apparently that comes from the Cronenberg uh, attempt at a draft that he did. That sounds like a very cronenberg thing. That makes total sense. In another world, I would love to see his version. It would have been a pretty different movie if you do Total Recall through the filter of Scanners or something. It's a very different movie. I thought you were going to say the scene with the uh, rebellion leader, I forget his name, coming out of the stomach of the other guy. <laughs> I thought that would also make sense as a Cronenberg scene. Yeah, I mean, it's so close to Videodrome and other things. Uh, if you don't know this as well, this is a great one. Schwarzenegger's character's name was changed from Quail, which is what it is in the book and the script. It's probably because Dan Quail was very much in the news at that time. So they didn't want a lead character named Quail. Yeah. People assume, oh, this is like his grandson, like his great-grandson or something. <laughs> I love that reading. Uh, because you brought it up, and because I was going to bring it up anyway, let's talk a little bit about uh, traveling to Mars, because, I mean, it's, it's the obvious choice. As a story to tell about planet colonizing, do you have any inspiration from Total Recall on this one? Or do you have any um, inspiration from Red Planet or Mission to Mars or John Carter? The only inspiration I think I took from all the movies I've seen about Mars and traveling Mars was about how unrealistic they are and so i wanted to make mars more like as it really is and less like you've seen it in these movies which is probably a kind of a spoiler because yes they do eventually get to mars but yeah i wanted to be much more about this guy's personal regrets and what's happened to his life and on earth and about mars being sort of this final destination where he's going to die for those who don't know aren't familiar with the story it's about the first man to set foot on Mars and he's chosen to be the first person to set foot on Mars because he's terminally ill so they don't have to bother bringing him back and also they've discovered a huge amount of natural gas on Mars making it the single biggest pile of wealth in the history of humanity and whoever gets to Mars gets to claim it for whoever they want so he's been sent by this corporation this sort of imitation meat corporation to go claim this energy resource on their behalf, therefore giving them control of the global economy for the foreseeable future. So that's the, basically the premise. But it's really a, about, it's not like a, a traditional sort of space action story. It's really more about this guy being left alone to contemplate all of his missed opportunities on Earth and what his life meant now that it's over. Traveling to Mars is a wonderful, albeit sad and contemplative story i really enjoy it thank you when it comes to this mars thing i mentioned all these titles like red mars and mission to mars and i've realized that every 10 years or so there is another attempt at a sci-fi film about mars they're either attacking us or we're terraforming them it's practically a genre into itself 
you know, like time loop movies. So I don't know, maybe we should do a Mars time loop movie. Have, have we had one of those yet? Oh, that sounds perfect. <laughs> Mars time loop with a, uh, a man is exposed by a primal force of nature and cannot take how he's reacted to it back. I think as long as every sequence ends with the uh, Schwarzenegger eye bulging thing. Yeah. Over and over and over. Just gratuitously. Just for no reason. It just happens. (laughs) Uh, Mark, why don't you uh, take us into your final film? Okay, the last movie I have on my list is the uh, Roberto Rossellini's The Flowers of St. Francis. And the IMDb says that this film is a series of vignettes depicting the lives of the original Franciscan monks, including their leader, as well as the bumbling Ginepro. I got nothing for this one, Mark, uh, other than I know it's the movie that Isabella Rossellini was conceived during. Oh, really? <laughs> yep. She is a flower of St. Francis. Yes, apparently her dad was having an affair with Ingrid Bergman during the shooting. But I actually haven't seen this one, so why don't you sell me on it a little? Yeah, it's a beautiful film. The, I mean, the description's pretty accurate. It's really about St. Francis trying to instruct his monks, who are just sort of like bunglers and not terribly bright, but trying to instruct them on how to be loving human beings and i think the beauty of it to me is that in the end it doesn't matter that they're that dumb or bungling or not terribly adroit that they've managed to understand the core of what makes a person good and that in itself is enough to make them heroes it makes them these heroic figures one of them stops a war and one heals somebody and it's just these people end up doing great things, even though they're just very mundane, ordinary, not very great people. And there's the scene at the end is really moving to me where when St. Francis decides that they've learned what he had to teach them and they're ready to go out on their own and spread the gospel of human compassion around the world, he has all his monks sort of spin around. So they're all standing, spinning around in circles till they get dizzy and fall over. And then whatever direction they're facing when they fall over, that's the direction they're supposed to walk in to spread the word. And so these people that we spent the whole movie getting to know, and we know there's probably not very good things in store for them because they're too naive and giving to exist for long in this world, just sort of go off one by one in all these different directions. And you're left kind of pondering what fate awaits them. But in a way, the movie is right to end there because the only fate that really matters is that they understand. They understand what it is to be a good human being. And now they're ready to take that light for as long as it lasts out into the world. And it's just incredibly moving to me. Well, the only other thing I know about the film is that it is co-written by Fellini. It's an early credit for him. Really? I didn't know that. Much like how Dario Argento is an early, his earliest credits are working with Sergio Leone on a film before he struck out on his own. Uh, Well, because obviously there's the element of religion in this movie, I have to ask, you have written a lot of comics and other things that are critical of religion. There's God is Disappointed in You, Second Coming, and like I mentioned earlier, The Flintstones. Have you had much negative feedback because of these books? Any death threats? I think what I'm asking is, are you living in hiding? I'm not living in hiding. I don't know if anyone cares anymore, but I did get some blowback, some weird threatening things from Second Coming. Oddly, all of which came before it was even out. They announced the Second Coming was this comic book about Jesus Christ living with a superhero. And apparently it got reported on like a slow news day on Fox News. And that's sort of what set everything off. And then I started getting nasty messages and emails and they drew up this online petition to get dc to drop it because at the time it was supposed to be coming out of vertigo and every time someone signed this petition it auto-generated an email that went directly to dan DeDio's inbox who was then in charge of dc and he said he, he got like about 130,000 emails from this thing before he realized what was happening and shut it off 
but this petition generated about a half a million signatures. So Vertigo did sort of like get cold feet and asked me if I would take it somewhere else. So I ended up taking it to Ahoy, which, you know, to their credit, they were willing to publish it exactly the way I wanted it written and didn't want to like make any changes and actually let me put more in than I had originally intended. So the story has a happy ending. But yeah, it was weird to be on the receiving end of that because I just naively had assumed that people would, you know, wait to read a comic before deciding that they hated it. And that was wrong. But yeah, once it actually came out and people saw what the comic was about, it was really about reaffirming the uh, initial message of Christ. A lot of that dropped away. But I think a lot of people are very nervy about when you deal with Christianity not because they're afraid you're going to be blasphemous or insulting to Christ, but because you're going to expose them as, you know, the sort of self-appointed caretakers of Christ's legacy or the like, as the owners of rightful owners of Christianity, they're the only ones who should have an opinion on what it means. And anybody who challenges that is probably going to have a saner, more humane version of what Christianity should be up to than they do. And so I think they rightfully feel immediately threatened by that. Do you have any other uh, movie industry near misses or successes that we don't know about yet? I uh, have a shopping agreement for Second Coming. Atlas Entertainment is trying to get it turned into a TV show, so that would be exciting. Oh, so you're finally going to get to live out that dream of absolutely having to go into hiding. Yeah, hopefully. <laughs> 